You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In recent times, there's been a lot of talk about population growth, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, and whether this will render our cities unlivable. And when we start to feel things are getting crowded, when our roads groan under the weight of too many cars, and when we think our kids won't be able to afford to buy a home or even rent one, then we humans tend to get very protective of our status quo. But let's face it, our cities really are very spread out and our populations are small by global standards, and anyone who has travelled will know that. So surely we have capacity for more people. And aren't we all about to jump into, uh, you know, driverless cars and uh, fast trains and live remotely anyway? Now, having said that, of course, are we paying attention to how Gen Z and Gen Alpha will live as they grow older and move out of home? Will they chase home ownership with the same zeal as their parents? And wouldn't it be great if we had a crystal ball to show us what the future holds? Well, today we have the next best thing, a demographer, a futurist. Mark McCrindle is an award-winning social researcher, best-selling author and influential thought leader. And today we want to explore Mark's understanding of key social trends and what the future looks like in terms of how we live, where we live, what we live in and who we live with. Welcome, Mark, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Veronica and Chris. Great to be with you. Thank you, Mark. I'm extremely looking forward to this episode. Um, Not that I'm not with other guests, but (laughs) I do love um, demographics and I do love you know, understanding and thinking about this as a topic. Um, I think it has such a huge impact on the property market. And the more that we can understand this, the more we can understand the property market. Mm. I think the the future of our cities is quite interesting. Um, you know, there's lots of talk around, you know, where it's going to go. What do you think are some of the stories that a lot of people aren't talking about that need to be heard? Well, urban growth is a strong one. And uh, clearly we see that around our cities. Uh, we've got a population that's growing, but our urban centres growing even faster than than the suburbs and particularly the outer areas. Uh, but also when we talk about urban growth and city growth, it's not just a story of the capitals because the regional cities are growing very strongly as well. Particularly, you look across both Queensland and regional Victoria and you've got cities there like Ballarat and Bendigo and Wodonga that are growing very fast. In fact, Geelong growing faster than Melbourne at the moment in mm. growth rate. So so the growth of cities, the urbanisation trend isn't just about those capitals, and we do see growth across population centres you know, right across this nation. And what's causing that growth, do you think? Well, the biggest part is net overseas migration. So we are on the global map. Australia is a place to relocate to. In fact, some places like New South Wales has had a net interstate loss. So we're actually mm. losing more people to, to the other places. And uh, South Australia, WA, the Northern Territory, the same. So so we've, across a lot of Australia, got growth because of the net overseas migration. In fact, nationally, that comprises 60% of our growth, just 40% coming through natural increase. So we are ticking along with births minus deaths, but it's really that overseas arrivals that's driving the growth we see nationally. And are they coming into Sydney and Melbourne and then sort of existing people, existing residents are moving to those regional areas? Is that the way it's working or are the immigrants coming and going to the regional areas? No, you've summed it up in that former statement there, Veronica. It is uh, the gateway to Australia is Melbourne and Sydney. And you've got those that have been born and raised here that are finding the cost of living and the stress, the pressures, perhaps the commute times a bit much and they're looking for lifestyle change, perhaps tree change elsewhere. So that's the shuffle that we've Mm. got. Overseas gateway arrivals, uh, locals looking for alternatives, and that's what's growing the regions. So there's been a bit of talk recently about slowing down population. You know, we've got problems with congestion, et cetera. Do you think that that's actually what the government want to do, or do you think they're just literally saying it out there to please the public now to win votes, but really they want to keep population growing quite strongly? Yeah, we have got an economy built on population growth at the moment. And you know, our growth of 1.6% per annum that we've seen consistently in the last few years 
is below what we had a decade ago when we're hitting 2% per mm. annum. Um, now it is higher than we have had historically, but but even with this tweaking of the migration numbers into Australia, about thirty or 40,000 less than we saw, so bring us to about the 200,000 net migration numbers, that's way above what we had 20 years ago under the Howard government where it was about eighty or 90,000 a year. We're okay. still double that. And it looks like that 200,000 per year uh, net growth uh, is is locked in. And, you know, the economy requires it. If we look at how they're coming or why they're coming, visa-wise, the majority of that is skilled visa. It's mm. plugging the workforce gaps that we can't fill locally. And then you've got students, of course, which is one of our big export earners. You've got long-term holiday makers. You've got to keep in mind that those net overseas or permanent arrivals, as they call them, uh, are anyone here for 12 months or more. So mm. that's not necessarily people here for the rest of their life. Mm. And, and it's a big economic um, uh, bonus as well. So a lot of people, um, you know, a bit upset when population's rising. They think that they're taking their jobs or they're not taking jobs. They're sitting there and not working and on the dole. Do you have any evidence to prove that that's not really the case? Do you, do you have any stats you could kind of help our listeners better understand? Because I think there's a misguided belief that they're causing more problems than they're creating, I guess. Yes. Only about 7% of the visas granted. And so those permanent arrivals are here for non-economic or economy boosting reasons, mm. uh, family reunion visas, uh, humanitarian visas. Yeah. It's a very small proportion. So the bulk are coming here to add to the economy. They're on a sponsored visa, they're on a skilled visa, they're moving into a job. And of course, they're taxpaying in that role and they're plugging a gap that otherwise wouldn't be filled. The government really has tightened up on those skilled visas and also on the student visas. Mm. So this idea that you can just come here and and sort of you know hang about and not really or do a, a pretend course that doesn't happen as much now either. Mm. And after coal and iron ore, the biggest export earner we have is this international student arrival. So so the bulk of it is having a big impact on the economy and it does stimulate the property because you've got people that are renting, you've got people that are spending, you've got people that are needing accommodation, uh, even though it might not be a permanent thing, it's 12 months or so. And so that does drive the, the development and the investment into housing as well. And if the numbers are fairly consistent, then those that leave next year will be replaced anyway. So I guess they've got to be housed. You talk about skilled uh, migrants and um, and we know that the government's cracked down. I think the hospitality industry has been screaming about the fact that they're, you know, they've been closed out of the 457 visas. What are some of the skills that we are short of? A lot in the manual areas. So if we look at the manufacturing sector, that's where we've got skilled visas coming in. Now, that's a declining sector. Agriculture has been another key area. That's also pretty slow around employment. But increasingly, you've got people that are doing clerical or back office operations that, again, we can't get locals to fill. You know, we've got to keep in mind in Australia that more students who finish school go into university than Mm. go to TAFE or get a vocational qualification. So even in the construction industry, you think of the plasterers, the painters, the renderers, that is largely through overseas migration rather than locals being trained in those trades. So we do have a, a real skill shortage. And of course, not everything can be done online. Not everything can be outsourced overseas. We do need people physically here to do some of this. Mm. And then we move to the caring area. You have got an aging population. We've got the NDIS looking after the caring of Australians mm. that need assistance. Again, we've got real shortfalls with locally born Australians to fill those roles. That that caring profession, really, the backbone of that is from overseas. So as we as a nation become wealthier, we don't want to do the dirty jobs. So we import them. Is that what you're saying? That seems to be the <laughs> attitude, you know, and, and maybe it is this job snob sort of mm. culture that we've created in young people. You know, we mm. need to keep in mind that one of the strongest correlations between long-term career success from study is having a part-time job during the study years. So this idea that young people can live with mum and dad, do a degree, you know, be funded by them for three or four or five years and then move into some professional role, I think uh, underestimates the benefit of developing a work ethic and a Mm. culture by part-time work. And a lot of that can be in the caring roles. A lot of that can be in those part-time service or hospitality roles. And uh, we need to encourage that with young people. Do you think that Australians, um, you know, we've just had population growth consistently. There's always people who want to come here. Do you think that we should be very careful and not become complacent to assume that the world would always want to come to Australia? Have you seen any trends to kind of show that, you know, some parts of the world are no longer seeing Australia as that kind of dream location? Yes. It's a world of global competition for arrivals now. If we look at education, for example, 
Uh, you've now got more Chinese universities in the top 100 ranked universities than we do mm. in Australia. We used to think we were the only game in town, you know, and anyone from Asia wanted to study, where else would you want to go but Australia? Uh, and we do have great universities, of course, and so does the emerging world, and so does Asia. And, mm. so, and you know, America's really uh, profiled themselves better in higher ed. Canada has, England has. So if someone is looking for an English education, it's not just Australia. We can't be complacent about this. And you're right, Chris, in other areas as well. You know, even long-term holiday making, uh, working visas, even just as a place to relocate on a skilled visa, there are other options and we can't assume that they're always going to come here. And we also can't take it for granted because in the last year, for example, if New South Wales didn't have growth from overseas arrivals, we would have almost gone backwards. I think we grew by six or 7,000 people through natural increase borderline in a mm. in a state of 8 million people. Mm. And if you look at Tasmania, until the last couple of years when the property market took off and the economy took off, yeah. they were going backwards in numbers because they couldn't get the overseas arrivals and no one was moving there from Australia. So that is what happens. And if you have population contraction, you have an economic contraction. Yep. So we do really rely on the migration growth. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think it's, it's very easy for us to say, oh, we're growing too fast. We don't want to you know just reduce the caps. But that sends out a perception to the world that we don't really want great talent to come here. And, you know, I think that a lot of the two in the last two years, a lot of the changes with the four, five, seven and the extension from two years, I think you've got to be here now to uh, four years. You've got to be here now to get permanent residency, yes. not two years, you know, upset a lot of people. And a lot of people said, well, I don't want to be here anymore. And I think a lot of the things with Brexit, you know, um, how much that is as upset their kind of, you know, dream location moving to London. So I think the Australians just got to be a bit careful not to just, you know, look a gift horse in the mouse and think that, you know, we shouldn't just uh, encourage population growth and tourism because, you know, at one point it might flip the other way and we could mm. have economic kind of problems yes. that could be caused. Exactly. And, you know, that we've had this long-term shift in terms of migration patterns from Europe, which we've taken for granted for a couple of hundred mm. years now, you know, England and, and, and indeed New Zealand, and they still are in the top five countries of birth of those born overseas. But China, uh, India... Uh, Philippines and Vietnam are also the next ones on that mm. list. In fact, uh, number two country of arrival after uh, after England in terms of our total population is China. In terms of current, arri current arrivals, China is number one by a long way in India as well. So, so we do look to our north now in Asia and we have had a boom in the entrepreneurial base of Australia in terms of our trade in terms of getting good skills by connecting with Asia. And uh, and we're in a great location strategically and geographically because of that and the migration. So again, factors we need to keep in mind for our future. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, let's face it, Australia's built on migrants and mm. invaders. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't like change. And the face of Sydney and Melbourne is very much changing. It is it is changing. Certain sub, certain suburbs and areas have, have been noticeably changing, say, over the last few decades. But our wealth is very much built on that. And so if we just focus on one thing and, you know, we're failing to understand the whole knock-on domino effect of all of this stuff, and that's been the topic of conversation with so many of our episodes, so many of our guests here, is that you can't just adjust one thing and expect it not to have an impact on our economy mm. and on our wealth and our individual property prices, you know, one reason why Sydney is so strong and Melbourne is so strong. And even though we've had these falls, but generally speaking, they are the two strongest markets in the country is, is underpinned by population yes. and expected growth, right? That's, that's exactly right. So what do we have to do to fit more people into our cities? Well, we're on the right track there, you know, and again, we need to remind ourselves that if we didn't have the urban growth that we have in Sydney and Melbourne, and we all whinge about it from time to time, the congestion and the like, we didn't have that. We wouldn't be seeing the metro that's now up and running in Sydney. We wouldn't be seeing light rail investment. We wouldn't be seeing in Melbourne massive investment in, in heavy rail as well. Talk of high-speed rail connecting Sydney and Melbourne and maybe Canberra. This would not be taking place if we didn't have the population densities of 5 million cities as Melbourne and Sydney are. So, mm. so it brings a lot of living and a lot of lifestyle that otherwise we wouldn't get and an accommodation type that a lot of people want. Not everyone wants a suburban house in the outer parts with a, a backyard. You know, a lot of young people now and downsizing boomers are looking for that apartment living, the walkable community. And again, that only happens with population growth. Yeah. Keen, keen to know more about that, actually, in terms of that demand of young people and young families for apartments. Because I know, you know, we mentioned this many times. My sister lives in Italy, for instance. She's brought, bringing up two boys in an apartment. Everyone lives in apartments pretty much, you know. Well, not everyone, but, you know, the majority mm. live in apartments. 
They don't even have outdoor space. You know, it's not like here you've got to have a big garden, courtyard or terrace or mm. something. And, you know, back in my my parents' day, it was a almost a status thing to have your quarter acre block, you mm. know. So we're talking a 1,000 square metres mm. or, you know, yes. 700 up to 1,000. And now I quickly jumped online and had a look at what the size of blocks are in these outer subdivisions of Sydney now. And they're as small as 240 square metres and sort of mm. the average is around 300. Mm. And they don't have much of a backyard, by the way. These houses are built cheek to jowl. But there's, so there's a definite change in expectation in terms of space. So I'd be keen to know what the research is showing in terms of that attitude change around apartments for Australians. Is well, it purely because, sorry, is it purely because we've got so many people coming from overseas. And it's driven by by the demand side as well. That is that that actually locals and overseas arrivals are looking for that sort of living. You know, we've got not only generational change, but we've got attitudinal change. We've got changing household structures, two income earning households, busy lives, juggling kids and everything else going on. And even those with young families don't necessarily want a backyard anymore. We've done really mm. well on our city planning with parks and shared public facilities that can allow that that community and that green space. But, you know, people just want to lock up and leave place so they can get to work and they don't want the weekend focused on maintenance in the backyard. So so Australians have responded to the different products on option now mm. beyond just that suburban home. And again, that comes with the population growth. And as for the, the growth, you know, we think, well, can we sustain this growth? You know, Melbourne last year grew by 135,000 people in a year. We've never had a city grow by as many people in a single year. So it is strong growth. But we are creating the lifestyles to go with that growth, the the, the densification with the city planning and the and the uh, locale um, and the the urban facilities that can accommodate that growth. We're way above what was forecast. The, the ABS forecasts of 20 years ago said that our population in 2051, and so we've got three decades to get there, they said would probably about be about 26 million. We're already at 25 and a half million. So we're, we're closing in on that with three decades to go. So in other words, we're way above the forecast of what was predicted mm. um, from 20 years ago as to where we would be mid-century. We're, we're not going to be at 26 million in the middle of the century. We'll be more like 42 million. But if we look at how we've accommodated that growth above the forecast, we've accommodated it very well and we haven't sacrificed lifestyle for it. So we have a habit of finding solutions and I think mm. that will continue. So I think that, you know, because the next generation, if you're saying potentially might want to uh, live in the inner walkable city, near the city kind of hubs, apartments are more style like what they want. Is that kind of going to be a potential problem for developers who are kind of building these green fields, you know, outer fringes? Because, you know, people say, oh, you know, there's a housing problem in Sydney or there's a housing problem in Melbourne. And as soon as you get on the satellite mm. and you start looking at <laughs> land available, well, really in the western suburbs <laughs> of Melbourne, there's, you know, farms and farms and farms. We could build, you know, two million houses there. If you look at the southwest of Sydney, you know, there's farms and farms and farms that could be houses. So we haven't got a shortage of land out there, but would that, do you think there could be a long-term shortage of demand where people say, we don't really want to live 60 k in the city. We mm. want to live in apartments. I think that's a good point, Chris. We do have to watch this suburban sprawl. And I think even more Melbourne where there is no natural land mm. barriers uh, like Sydney has with the Blue Mountains and rivers. So so they can keep expanding and and there's the opportunity to do that and there's the population growth to do that. But at some point, that distance, particularly the commute, uh, if they're working in the CBD, uh, does become a barrier or can create those dormitory suburbs where people live there in the day and, and, and but but you know then they sorry in the night but then they're, they're empty all day and certainly empty all week you just don't mm. have that lifestyle and uh, and I think we have to get our city planning right particularly around where the work is located this idea of the of the spoken hub you know everyone lives in the outer suburbs and then commutes into the CBD has to change we're starting to see that with business parks and new pop, um, new employment centers outside of our CBDs we haven't nailed that yet and we haven't nailed better commutes and connections across areas of our city. So so if we can get that right, I think the sprawl can probably continue. Um, but uh, but it's not a given that just because we've got a greenfield and put up a bunch of new shiny homes, it's going to sell because there is a little change in that, location mattering more, urban and walkable mattering more as well. And why, why do you think we haven't got those sort of employment hubs right? Yeah, well... Big business wants to be in amongst the action. Mm. The uh, the larger corporates want to be around other business services. And because we've had such a model of CBDs, 
uh, even secondary CBDs have taken a while to take off. Now, Sydney's got North Sydney and that's worked out all right. And then mm. a more recent decades, we've got the Sydney Olympic Park. We've got Norwest Business Park, you know, Chatswood. Uh, Lower North Shore has got a few things, the occasional thing in, yep. in the southern part. But They're not that far out though, are they, when you think about it? <laughs> exactly. We, we haven't, because we've, we've put in industry in the outer suburbs, you know, manufacturing and the, and the, the warehousing and, and any professional sort of service type roles are, are in a urban or in the business parks. And they, again, are quite close to the CBD. And yet our employment trend is all towards white collar, professional tech roles and uh, and that that manufacturing hub is is not really humming along. So we've got to get a more diversified offering of ro- roles and jobs across the regions of our cities uh, than the traditional model. It's funny you say that because I think that's one of the really interesting point for people is they'll get very excited about say Badgery Creek Airport and they think there's going to be this huge employment hub that's just going to boom there. And it's it's like well, it may even if you want something, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I think a lot of these employment hubs. You know, they do have a lot of the back office, you know, a lot of the middle management and lower kind of, you know, positions. And then the exec teams are all in the city. You know, they've got an office in the city for the high paying kind Mm. of jobs. And then all the kind of middle and low paying jobs are in the suburbs. And I think CBA is a good example because CBA had all these offices around and it wasn't really working. So they ended up putting 10,000 people in Redfern, you know, right near the city Mm. um, because it was much better for commutes. It was around other businesses, et cetera. So I think that's another example where it, you know, people are still gravitating towards the cities and you only have to look at how much office towers are going up. Um, there's no, is that kind of where all your knowledge jobs are pretty much getting created and very little in kind of Parramatta and things like that? It's slowly starting to change. I mean, Parramatta is a great example, Chris, because you are getting the banks, uh, government uh, and large business are starting to invest there. We're getting a CBD in itself mm. occurring there. It's not just a retail precinct. Uh, and it's not just government services. There's a lot more going on. So if we give it a 30 or 40 year time span, we will have multiple CBDs in Sydney and Melbourne has the exact same vision. The, the, the future of Victoria plan is that, um, 30 minute cities. And, uh, and that's what we'll see across our larger capitals, but mm. it, it'll take a couple of decades yet and better commute, uh, commute connections, light rail and other options, uh, that'll, that'll help facilitate that. So I think, would you agree though, that a lot of it's chicken and egg, like a lot of government could go to Parramatta because, you know, they're kind of incentivized to do it and they're in control. And, but do you think a lot of kind of new starting, you know, you know, entrepreneurial type businesses want to be in the action still, and they don't see Parramatta, even if there is government and Deloitte and things like that there, they still want to be in the CBD, you know, where the action's happening. That's right. It is changing a little bit. It takes a while to change those attitudes. Uh, and and the city, our, our CBDs uh, of our largest capitals have really um, become reinvigorated of recent decades. Uh, it, it, they are the startup hubs. They are the cultural capitals. They are the uh, the, the new young you know, entrepreneurial hotspots. And so mm. that's given extra weight and, and gravity, if you like, to our CBDs, meaning these outer CBDs are finding it harder to compete. But I think we will start to see change. We are starting to see change where people see an outer CBD as a bit of a cultural hub, as a bit of a a, 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 um, a retail and a, and a recreational and a, and a food culinary hub in its own right. Uh, and with a population centre more closely located to it and often a lot more cultural diversity, which creates that extra dynamism as well. So we're on the right track. It'll probably take a decade or two to really see it yet. It's really yeah. interesting actually that because, I mean, Paramount is a great example. I'm just thinking back to nearly 25 years ago I was in recruitment and I was in the Parramatta office which of a company that had the head office in Sydney and um, in the city and it was very much, they, they said not so jokingly call it the nursery <laughs> you know, it was certainly seen as a poor cousin. Um, but, you know, there was office buildings there. There was a Westfield there. There was there were some restaurants out there. There was, you know, and, and it has certainly changed in the intervening 25 years, but it's still not quite there yet. And you think all these people that want to buy investment properties, for instance, and they're chasing that, I'm going to buy out in Liverpool, for I give it a say, because that's going to be the next hub. And that's a really interesting point that it takes decades. You know, the intention is to be there at the outset. They've got to... But, you know, then some companies may move in and they move out. You know what I mean? It's going to be this two steps forward, one step back, I would imagine, for some time. Um, Yeah, I just think that that's a really interesting um, Mm. reflection. I think a lot of around Parramatta in particular, a lot of that, 
has been really hit hard with property values over the last, you know, two years compared to other parts. Um, I think because it was overexcited, you know, people were seeing Parramatta, there was 30 big, you know, mm. huge high rises that were approved. I don't think most of them are going to go ahead now because they just can't sell them, but it was really a big growth story and people got overexcited. And I think Bradgerys Creek and things like that. So people just got to be very careful when you are trying to invest on these big hot spots because it's going to take time and it's going to mm. take decades. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that about it's what's being built too. You know, so if basically you've got a bunch of, you know, big buildings with two-bedroom apartments and you've got families that might want to live there and they want bigger apartments, you know, there's a mismatch in terms of what's yeah. being built versus mm. what where the demand's going to be. What we do see, what they do have, and Parramatta is a great example, Geelong is another one um, from Melbourne, is is that they've got the right demographic mix, a younger population, a more culturally diverse one. I mean, Parramatta really is, uh, exemplifies that. Uh, it's the centre, Parramatta is, of of the city of Sydney's population um, centre. There's many people live further west of Parramatta as live east yeah. of mm. Parramatta. The so what do you call it, the uh, geographic centre? Yeah, the population yeah. centre and, and the geographic centre. Mm. And, and so it's got this dynamic population that's actually growing faster than, than the city is and uh, with that cultural diversity, the younger age, and now very strong education base there in terms of Western mm. Sydney University, in terms of some new hard up, uh, startups. You've got a bit of a few cultural hubs being moved out there like the Powerhouse Museum. Mm. All of that with the infrastructure taking place is setting it up very well. And yet you've still got some price advantage because, as you said, Chris, you know, people still sort of, it, it disappointed a little bit. Well, that's the perfect time to to look when all of the ingredients are there. Uh, people can mm. sort of buy in and get the uplift that comes from that from that infrastructure growth. It's quite funny, isn't it? Because in so many sort of speculative type investments, the people getting early are the ones that make the money. Whereas mm. in this case, it yes. might be the ones that got in early right. are the ones that are losing all the money. Mm. <laughs> Too visionary, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Gen Z or Alpha, you know, obviously Alpha's only very new, isn't it? That's only... The last seven since, years. Since 2010, yeah. yeah. Look, my daughter's just turned 13 and she's not even alpha. So, yeah, you know, so that's <laughs> she's it, Gen Z, Z, yeah. yeah. Is it too early to be finding out what they want or what they're thinking? No, I mean, we can look at their parents and they're at school now, the the oldest of these Gen Alphas, and we can start to understand a bit about what's shaping them. So, you know, in terms of uh, these generational definitions, each generation now spans 15 years. So I'm sure most people have heard of Generation Y and after them came Generation Z, born mm. from the mid-1990s to 2009. So the children of these Gen Ys, because uh, the Gen Ys now, they're not just you know young people, they're hitting their early 30s. Uh, we call them Generation Alpha. We've worked our way through the alphabet, so moving to the Greek one, and uh, that's what's going to label every generation. <laughs> when you say generation. we moved to the alphabet, we went from baby boomer to Gen X. True. We didn't start at A. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so we, uh, we started at the wrong part of the alphabet. But anyway, having completed it, um, alpha is the next. And, and what we know about them is that the parents of them, the Gen Ys, are actually pretty conservative when it comes to raising their children. They're, they're focused on ensuring that they get every opportunity in life. We're seeing growth in investment in young people going to independent schools, not just government schools. We're seeing after-school tutoring. We're seeing the co-curricular mm. activities being invested in strongly. These Gen Ys who were originally the dot-com kids and the iGen and all of that are actually limiting screen time because they are digital natives. They've seen the technology, its possibilities, but the downside of it. Mm. And mm. so really structuring the lives of these kids in a pretty more formal way. And, and I think they're shaping up as a, as a pretty exciting generation to watch. This is sort of interesting because, of course, I'm Gen X. I, you know, I was a bit old when I had my daughter. Mm. <laughs> Millennials are having babies, you know, yes. and, and even they're getting a bit old now. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, and obviously you're saying Gen Y having kids. Um, you know, when people have children, despite the fact that they might look at screen time differently and, and investing in education differently, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of what they want to live in and where, you know, the things that are important to them, you know, you talked about convenience, you talked about lock up and leave and everything, but mm. fundamentally, you know, a lot of, uh, I hear a lot of Gen Y talk about they want flexibility. So before they have children, they want to be able to literally lock up and leave in the country often. Yes. But once they have children, do they really start to go back to, does everyone basically, is everyone the same once they have mm. kids? Yeah, they are, Veronica. It's a good it's a good observation because security becomes a key focus when people move into the family forming years. I mean, a little um, stat that'll show this: four in five couples who marry cohabitate prior to marriage, um, and yet four in five children born in Australia today are born to married couples. In other words, couples will live together, you know, hang out. When it comes, what's the trigger point for them getting married? 
thinking about starting a family. Mm. And then they say, even though we've lived together all these years, let's tie the knot because they want security before bringing children into the world. And the same is true of property. They want to move from the rental to suddenly get a place where they've got some security, i.e. their own place. So so it is a key time. A lot of change happens as they start to move into the family forming years, not just their, their own relationship and the status of that. But of course, thinking about property, thinking about where they're going to live, thinking about where the children are going to be educated and and their futures as well. So security, uh, nesting, you know, focusing on the future and viewing through things through the eyes of these children uh, becomes a priority. I love that. I mean, that's good because I think that's really leads into where you can be smart with property investing because you're right, like they, they get married and then they want to have kids, but at the same time, they're thinking about getting home ownership. Mm. And so no matter what's happening in the world, um, they, they think it's a good time to buy because they really want security. And so they, if you could have, you buy a property that really young first home buyers on double incomes that are on high incomes that they would want and that they would want to have a family in, um, it's a really strong demographic that no matter what's happening in the world, they're going to really desire your property. And yes. I think it's a, um, and, and they're usually the most emotional because, you know, they really want that security element as well. So, no matter what's happening, they'll, they'll more likely go out and buy rather than say, oh, it's all right, let's just wait five years because mm. they haven't got that time to wait. Exactly. And they're at a point in life because the average woman having a baby in Australia today is 31 years of age, mm. just a few months short of 31. In other words, they're a bit older as a couple, two incomes, as you said, they've got a bit more stability and they're looking astutely to buy a place for that security. And um, and it used to be that that couples, when they came to look, to start a family, wanted a home, detached home, you know, that traditional approach. That's changed. You know, people said, oh, unit living is for the singles and the couple only. Well, we've broken that ceiling. It's now for the couples with young children. Mm. And we've got in our CBDs and where the units are, a lot more childcare centres, a lot more primary schools, They're really and a lot of parks. You know, they're gearing up for the young families, these urbanised areas. Mm. And people at the moment say, okay, yeah, Couples with young kids live in, in units and apartments, but when the kids get a bit older, they move out. And that's been the pattern. But we're starting to see that glass ceiling break as well. That is, you've got couples, even with older children, moving into their high school or teen years, also living in apartments. So they can provide uh, long-term options and opportunities, this particular demographic, uh, but we've got to make sure we're building the right stock for them mm. with the versatility to not only be a couple only, but a couple with the youngsters and a couple with the teenagers as well. So good. Uh, I literally had the same conversation with a client last night. Um, so, you know, the basically they're looking to buy their, their first home. They're a young couple. They're a couple of years away from, I guess, the marriage and kids, um, but they're very conscious that they've been together a few years and it's very much going to happen, hopefully, if the water lines. Um, and she's from the lower North Shore and he's from Belgium. And he has no uh, desire to live in the upper North Shore and they can't afford the lower North Shore because it's just too expensive. And so, you know, it was a really half an hour chat and I was really challenging them and saying, look, um, you know, that one, they were saying they wanted to live in an apartment. And then I was saying, well, do you really want to live in an apartment or would you prefer to live in the upper North Shore and in a house? And she's like, he really wants an apartment. I kind of want the house. And it was this kind of push pull. And a lot of it probably comes down to probably where he's from and he's probably, you know, more, mm. you know, he's from Belgium and she's from the Northern North Shore. Um, and, you know, and she's like, look, I've been thinking about a lot and I actually do think that we could be happy in an apartment and, but we, we want a really nice apartment. And mm. so they want to live in Dremoyne, which is kind of an inner ring, kind of three bed apartment, you know, two baths, you know, with views. Um, and so, you know, and it's probably possible because there's some examples that we've seen, but it's just very interesting, but what they want from an apartment is very scarce and there's mm, not many of those right. out. And we, so we, when we look at the, what their stock available is what your point was, is that we haven't built what the young people really want. And so exactly. that's probably the big opportunity totally. going forward for developers to actually build what young families would really want. Exactly. And if we go back 20 years, you know, developers were saying, why would we need to build three bedroom apartments? Who needs three <laughs> bedrooms to their own apartment? Well, now that's the primary demand and, and sometimes four bedrooms and larger living spaces and larger uh, indoor outdoor spaces because you've got the kids, you need a little bit of space, not everything. Uh, you know, spending a lot of time as youngsters within the walls of the apartment. I, I note that Harry Triggerboff of Meriton said that they'll never build another development without a childcare centre in it mm. because that's now mm. the clientele buying into Meriton. So, so we're seeing a changing of the mindsets as to who lives in apartment living and the city is accommodating the young families and that's certainly something for the future. Also the downsizers, they want large apartments too. And, um, you know, I remember there's a development in Balmain Cove which was 
actually in Roselle, but mm. <laughs> marketers, you know, yes. back in the day, <laughs> which is probably about 20 years old now. Actually older. It's older than that now. God. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> and they've oversized, absolutely oversized. This is not marketing speak oversized. These are big three-bedroom apartments, some of them with a second living area, um, and all with big outdoor space as well. And they were really heavily pitched at the at the downsizer market, you know, with water views as well. So there's, and, and I remember first going through them in my first years of real estate and meeting the people that had bought in there and they were people that moved from the, the you know, the acreage out of Dural, that sort mm. of way. And certainly from the Upper North Shore, they'd all moved there. And, and I think what we're seeing now is seems to be that there's a bit of a shift from those people moving on to whatever's next for them and, yes. you know, and the family's actually starting to take take, take their space. Yes, but yeah. That, that was sort of a bit, you know, they, that was a development that was very much ahead of its time, mm. really. And, and there's still not enough of it. No, that's right. And keep in mind, you know, developers need to certainly keep it in mind that if, if they do see a good opportunity for the downsizers, mm. that doesn't mean that you don't need the barbecue areas and the kid-friendly spaces because downsizers have grandkids. Absolutely. And want to bring yeah. the grandkids mm. and their own kids along. And downsizers want the life and energy that young families have. We all look for that diversity of housing types. No one wants to live in a place where there's no kids to be seen, where there's no life and energy mm. um, that, that young families and that the variety of the age groups brings. Is there a change in downsizing? Because it seems to me that, that people are deciding to downsize maybe a little earlier. They're realising that while they're physically able and they want to go and travel more and they really want to embrace everything that retirement has to offer, that... Yeah, they may be doing so a little earlier. Is that yes, happening? That is. And, you know, we've got a whole industry geared up for retirement villages and retirement living. Less than one in 10 Australians will live in a retirement village. So the majority mm. handle it themselves. They're doing their own downsizing through their own private uh, residential market, and that is by buying those apartments or, or a more downsized property. And uh, they're pretty astute. They're cashed up. They are doing it a bit earlier, as you said, Veronica, for lifestyle mm. reasons. Um, but a big trend that we've noticed is they're not moving to traditional downsizing spots, either the coastal areas uh, or even sea train change areas or even those particular hotspots within our cities. They want to downsize locally mm. because the kids and grandkids, their connections, their social activities, the church, they're part of whatever it may be, is all local. So that is why we're seeing apartment dwellings and developments take place in even outer suburban areas uh, mm. of our cities to accommodate, you know, people wanting to stay within the area, yeah. not just have to move to those traditional apartment suburbs. It's funny you say because I think that's another trend as well when the, you know, the older generation, they, you know, maybe the kids have moved out, but the kids are in their 20s and they're not sure what the kids are going to do. You know, what, what the, and a lot of them say is what the kids do is determine where we go. Yes. You know, so if our kids move to London, we might move to London. Mm. You know, if our mm. kids stay in Sydney, we'll stay in Sydney. Poor like kids. They, <laughs> they can't really get away from the parents. Um, stalked by your parents. <laughs> but, you know, which is fair enough. I mean, um, if you've only got one child or two ch children. Oh, I won't and, be doing it. Go yeah. on. I'll go and visit, but I won't be going. To... <laughs> Chasing him around the world. Oh, God, I'm lonely. Um, but, they, you know, and if they do stay in Sydney because of work, right, and so, you know, they've gone to uni and they've got their career. It's hard for them to leave Sydney because they can't see any job prospects elsewhere. Maybe Melbourne or overseas is what they think. But they stay in Sydney. Then the parents have to stay in Sydney and they don't want to be too far away. Um, so they're not going to go and move four or five hours away down the coast or up the coast. And so what they end up doing is they end up wanting to stay somewhere close. And that's probably, you know, a good kind of idea. And a lot of them want to move to the northern beaches, for example, mm, yes. because... You know, it's an hour from it's the, the city. Next best thing. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, because it's an hour from the city, That's and we right. don't have to get to the city, and we've got the lifestyle benefits. And so, I think a lot of people need to think, you know, that is about these markets and how they're shifting, because you know they do impact on property prices. If your property does suit multiple assets and multiple buyer pool, um, can you just explain, you know, a, a bit about the different personality or the different way that people think? Um, because we're not all the same, right? Mm, and mm. even though we've got, you can categorize generations, even within that generation, there's different segments that, that's right. um, you know, think differently. Yeah, that's right, Chris. I mean, there's, you know, we've been talking demographics and those national numbers and state numbers tell a story, but below that, there are the psychographics, if you like, which is the attitudinal, the behavioral of what defines us and understanding therefore segments, as you said, beyond just the generational ones. I mean, each of these generations we were discussing has between four and five million people in them. So they're pretty mm. large groupings. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of attitudinal segments, particularly these days where social norms do not channel people into set ways of living or set life stages. There's a lot of 
variety or diversity within our population. And different areas will will attract different people, have a different vibe, if you like, or a different psychographic, um, different backgrounds and uh, uh, career types and uh, socioeconomics will, will, again, further create these segments. And understanding that is is key, those uh, those archetypes, if you like, or attitudinal categories. And it is important when uh, organizations are looking to develop or if someone is looking to buy to understand what's happening in your area. We can learn a lot about the locals within an area by the demographics because the demographics tell an attitudinal or life story as well. You know, if you look up a suburb or even a, a, a sub-suburban area, which you can do on the Australian Bureau of Statistics website with mm. the quick stats, it'll tell you, you know, earnings and average number of people and average age and uh, main job types. It'll tell you average education levels and all of that tells a psychographic story. It tells you an archetype of who's living in that area. Mm. And uh, someone in an outer suburb is going to be different to someone in an inner suburb. There are the more artistic suburbs. There are the more professional suburbs, the more conservative and the more uh, left-leaning ones. And and that the numbers can tell that even without doing your own focus groups or market research. And so is it like if you're going to split it up into some are more pessimistic versus some more optimistic, some are more aspirational, some are more, you know, except is there some type of, you know, like different like levers that you think that can really determine, like help us understand each generation more? Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I think one of them is looking at the financial attitudes and some people are more financially conservative and uh, and traditional. So if you look at jobs, they're looking for jobs that have high job security, traditional pathways. Others in other areas, we see a little bit more creative, perhaps more entrepreneurial, perhaps more willing to take a, a financial risk. You can see that around earnings, you can see it around job types, and you can see it around um, our education levels or the type of education that that have uh, have been achieved. You see it around locations? Yeah, yeah, you can see that as well. Um, so, you know, in the Western suburbs, for example, you've got a very traditionally conservative financial approach. You know, they've got, they've seen parents start at the bottom and work their way up, that 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 tenure within a career, that that focus on, you know, good, honest, roll your hands up and get it going. You see that approach to life. And in some of those areas, you have this very quick intergenerational rising of the socioeconomics. Parents maybe came out as migrants, their children are, are well on the way and the grandkids are, you know, really are doing well financially. This, this fast socioeconomic dynamism you see in some of these areas. Others have the luxury in other suburbs of maybe pursuing an artistic flair or uh, doing a bit more travel. Mm. And so the for them, and maybe they've got access to money beyond what they're earning themselves, it's not just about that pure financial return or uh, or, or the, the viability of a particular uh, financial option they're looking at. Which so you've got the financial side. That's interesting because that's really about, that's a luxury of being well off. If you're well off, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? You, you, you've got all those basic needs covered. You, you've, you've got a roof over right. your head. You've got a secure family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Then you go, oh, I can, I can go off and learn how to paint now. I can travel and mm. more esoteric things. Whereas if you're still in that foundational part of um, establishing yourselves, whether it be yourself individually as a family, then you're going to focus more on those concrete things. Do you think there's a bit of a, I guess, a, change in attitude towards people starting to think that, well, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, you know, they're not going to be able to expect to own a home anymore? There is a a lot of questioning of that uh, in families and parents see it most acutely because they know what was required when they got into the property market and it was a lot less than what's required these days, even when you compare that with with earnings. And uh, we have run surveys on this and the majority of homeowners today, and we're talking baby boomers and older Gen Xers, say that they can't see the, the, the likelihood of their children owning a home, certainly not in the same timeframes that they achieved it. So uh, so that's that's part of the challenge. And that's why we're seeing parents really step up in terms of allowing their children to live at home longer, in terms of supporting them with maybe use of the family car or increasingly towards uh, helping uh, give give something towards a deposit on a home. You know, they're, they're, they're finding ways to give them a leg up uh, because doing it on your own, even with two incomes these days in one of our larger capitals is a pretty hard achievement, certainly uh, harder to achieve in your 20s, uh, let alone even moving into your 30s. Mm. But at the same time, we've got alarmingly high levels of financial illiteracy. Mm. Yeah. You know, so, you know, they sort of go hand in hand, don't they? I think it's 
It's interesting you say that because that was a lot of the experience I had in 14, 15, 16 in the boom is, you know, there was a real uh, fear of missing out in the kids. And I, I feel a lot of that came from the pressure from the parents mm, and, yeah. um, you know, and society and you must buy and the parents mm. in the, in the kids ears and you're not successful until you own a property. And it's interesting because they want to help because they've, they think it's linear. Yes. They think that what happened in their lifetime is what's going to happen in, you know, the next <laughs> lifetime. And the cha- and the growth in the property market over the last 30 years is what's going to be the next 30 years. Yeah, and that's true. Um, I don't think it is. Um, we can't go from one income to two incomes. We can't go from one medium paying job to two high paying well, jobs. You can't go from two incomes to three incomes. Well, that's, <laughs> no, right. that's yeah. right. I mean, it could be the next, you know, yeah. Gen Alpha could be very open-minded. Send you, but, send, uh, or send your kids out to work a lot earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you, that you might actually, cause you might find that, uh, and I've got, you know, some clients that are um, brothers and sisters mm. and, um, uh, good friends that have bought properties together mm. and they live in co-sharing. Um, mm. I've got two clients, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney that, um, you know, one's two sisters, um, and one's and actually both two sisters. Um, and so they may, may come, come to a point where instead of us buying, you know, $2 million houses, um, we'll put four incomes together and buy a $2 million house. Yes. Um, yes. that's mm. got six bedrooms. So, you know, I guess there's things that, you know, that are going to change, but I think that a lot of the parents think that, um, you know, we've got to get in now and yes. create yeah. that anxiety in the child. And then the child's out there and they end up buying something that doesn't really suit them. Mm. So That's right. I think the other unintended consequence of parents really supporting their kids right through their 20s is that it can create a bit of a financial dependence mindset. You know, the kids now are relying on mum and dad mm. and, uh, and sometimes are slow to leave the nest and create their own pathway because of that support. Parents from the best of intentions are saying, get a degree, you know, we'll, we'll fund it. You know, it's mm. important to invest in your future. And yet sometimes doing that degree part-time, earning a bit on the side, making your own way in the world really develops that character and resilience yeah. and financial independence that, that we sort of lose if we're a bit sheltered. And uh, I think the other uh, challenge is that the, we see an attitude emerging with young people that was different to the parents where a lot of young people expect to start their economic life in the way in which they've seen their yes. parents finish their economic mm. life. They want to live in that nice suburb where they're at the moment living. And they it's see been the an parents. issue for decades. Yes, well, that's right. And, yeah. and we do forget that actually the parents of today, the baby boomers, achieved their wealth by starting at the bottom mm. rung on the ladder. Yeah. And it wasn't the most desirable suburb and it wasn't the most, most desirable property. They put sheets on the windows instead of curtains. <laughs> exactly. The milk crate was the coffee table. Yeah, you know, that's how it was. When I was young. <laughs> so we have lost a little bit of that in this lifestyle-driven, Instagram sort of aspirational world. And we could learn a lot to get back to the the start it from the ground level, build it yourself and be proud of it and, and, and you know, leapfrog as you go. But has the has the baby boomer had all the the tailwinds behind them in terms of you know we're twenty six years without a recession mm-hmm. you know um you know you can see the rise of incomes the population growth the do you think that they've had a lot of tailwinds that maybe the next generation haven't got yeah. they can't see that optimism that is true I mean it has been the golden age for the baby boomers they got into property and saw those places double or treble in in quite a you know, a decade or two I mean it was amazing. And that allowed them really in Australia to kick off this investment mindset, this multiple property mindset. It was the baby boomers in Australia that have ushered that in that's now become a mainstream sort of wealth accumulation vehicle. And they have had these unique times to do that. And and it's being discussed as if anyone can and everyone should and on one income you can. And of course, the times of change is not so possible or, or, or so easy. Uh, so I think that is true. We need mm. to therefore maybe scale out the timeframes, maybe adjust the expectations, maybe um, uh, alter a little bit uh, the approach and just transform that Aussie dream. It's not just what we saw our parents have. It's still an Aussie dream that's alive and well. Young people still want to own their own place, but it might look a little different to what they saw. And I think what the baby boomers didn't have are wealthy parents necessarily to maybe help the kids out and pass things on. So I think that the younger generations now have something different. Not that certainly my parents haven't had anything to me, um, (laughs) but I'm still Gen X member. But uh, I spoke to a fellow yesterday. He's seven. I'm guessing he's 71. um, And he wants to sell his big house and, and give each of his kids, you know, a chunk of money so that they can get on the ladder and he's not forgetting about himself. He's, he's, you know, uh, quarantined off a certain amount of money and the rest of it's for him to Mm. enjoy his life. And, Mm. and, and I thought that was interesting that that was very much part of his motivation to sell the property and the timing and and Mm. all those sorts of things around about, well, now's the time to help my kids. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, and I bet he didn't get that leg up from anybody. No, so he's right. had a economical leg up and the the benefit of when he was born yes, leg up. But yes. you know, and I think that that same leg up in many ways will translate to, you know, ongoing generations. They'll just have different advantages. That's right. True. And it's interesting you say that. So let's say he's got four kids and they all get you know a quarter of a million each. Um, you know, and he sells his four million dollar house. Let's say, um, he goes buys another. $2 million house, et cetera. But that, all those kids take that two fifty, and then they go to the bank and they go borrow another million. And so then you've just created demand for four new kind of home buyers. <laughs> off and one so sale. Off yeah. one sale. And well, so, five actually because he's got to buy another he's, one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of people think that the whole downsizer, you know, thing, you know, is going to create a lot of supply. But <laughs> I actually think <laughs> it's going to do point, the opposite. Yeah. Um, yes. And the person buying the $4 million house it's probably going to be someone who's at the three million dollar house is upgrading, hmm. um, and then there's usually more people wanting that three million house than you know that because it's, it's like a pyramid. So yes. it's interesting. A lot of the downsides that a lot of people think, well, who, all these old people are going to move out of these houses. Yeah, free up um, supply. Hmm. But I, you know, there's going to there's already people waiting to move into yeah. these houses. Well, actually, they're not really. You know, when you've got a house like that, for instance. It's on a big block of land, hmm. right? If the neighbour who's a similar age decides that she also wants to sell, they might actually become a development site. Yeah. Um, or, you know, that house may not have been touched for 40 years and so it needs to have either been knocked down, you know, and so there's those house and uh, the, uh, what do you call them, the package home, yeah. <laughs> mm. house in a box people, you know, they'll knock down the house and actually put up a project home there or, you know, maybe do an architectural renovation depending on where it's located mm. and what's what the original house is like. So... It's interesting that that what that does is feeds the economy in other ways mm. because quite often those houses are not the sort of house in its current form that somebody actually wants to go and live in. Yeah. And that's what that actually is. That's a really good example of explaining how we get shrinking supply of houses. Um, and whenever you own an asset, you want to have limited or shrinking supply. I mean, and mm. that's an example of it there. And growing demand, that's more population growth. Lots and of different growth. type of buyers. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And so, it's, you know, it's interesting talking about these things because you can see how over time things are mm. going to really shift. You know, when, when generations change, you know, is it really all hype that we create these boundaries between Gen X, Gen Y, baby boomers? <laughs> yes. Are we really, are we really that? January 2009, <laughs> bang. Yes, yes. You're next the, day, yes, you're a completely yeah. different animal. <laughs> but, or is it? Is it really, can you really see how different generations are and how we need to think about them differently? Well, clearly the the definitions are just banded years, you know, so that's that just creates these, these buckets. Um, but when you compare the buckets, if you like, even arbitrary though the years may be, you are ultimately dealing with people that were shaped in eras that were 15 years apart. And so we are the product of our times. In fact, it's been said that we resemble our times more than we re resemble our parents, mm. which in, in so many ways is true because the events, the experiences, the technologies, the life markers that leave fingerprints on us are different for each cohort. And not only is a generation defined by its times, which is different for each generation, but each generation is at a different life state. And so that has impacts. Yeah. You know, clearly someone in their 20s is different to someone in their 40s, different to someone in their 60s. And beyond that, the times that we live through uh, or our formative years or those different life stages further shapes us. So everyone has been in their 20s or everyone has been in their teen years that's an adult, but but we weren't in our teens in the 1960s or we weren't in our teens in the 21st century. And that creates differences as well. So you've got multiple factors that create generational differences mm. that does allow some pretty solid um, comparisons uh, and and some contrasts. And it's not the only step to understand our society, but it's the best first step to understand the segments and who we are and what defines us. There's, there's quite a lot of interesting um, resources on your website. We'll, we'll um, attach those to the show notes here as well because I found them really quite interesting. There's infographics there which are nice for those who don't have time or not inclined mm. to read and there's lots of blog posts and articles there. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Mark, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, I was talking with uh, one guy and we were doing some demographic analysis and uh, he was just sharing a bit of a, a war story that he had with uh, a property development. He was in a regional area building a... Um, sort of like a homemaker centre, fairly reasonably sized development uh, there. And they had all the plans done and council approvals. They were just ready to break ground on it and begin. 
and, and he had this sort of more innovative idea. He wanted the parking to be in the centre of this of this thing, and the and the, all the the buildings to be around the outside, so that. From a street presence perspective, you had the big walls of the centre, the big advertising, and it looked neat. You didn't see all these cars. Uh, they did some final market research and found that it was a totally dud idea. Uh, and indeed, when they looked at every other development of that type, it just doesn't work because Australians want to see where they are going to park before they get there. They don't want to drive through a narrow driveway and and, and assume there's a car park behind it. It's an example where... <laughs> How does that work with undercover parking, though? Well, see, uh, in, the cities, in the cities we're used to that, but right. in the regional areas and in the outer suburbs, you're driving along the road, you see the place, you see there's a big car park there or lots yeah. of pa- parking availability, and that draws you in. Right. If all you see is a building and no real way of, is there parking there? I don't know, it's all getting too difficult. I'll just go to the local place, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and it's an example of where, mm. you know, innovation, oh, I want clean design, I want advertising hoarding on the, on the, on the streetscape, mm. um, uh, overplays or, or, or diminishes the understanding of human psychology. Yeah. And understanding the human psychology, human behavior and attitude is key. Um, they ended up doing the more traditional design with the, the, uh, the big car park around it and, and the building in the middle and, and it had activity from day one and, um, and, and it's been a success, but but an example of looking at the numbers, understanding people. And that's what demographics is about. It's mm. the study of who we are, where we live, what defines us. Mm. Uh, the numbers tell a story. Interviewing people tells a story. And by understanding the human side of, of our decisions, I think it sets us up well for our business decisions. Oh, amazing. I love that. So, I mean, on the car parks part, I mean, is there a massive shift you can see in younger generations around car ownership and, you know, do we need car parks and do our cities need car parks and, have you done much research around that? Yeah, certainly in the urban areas, cars are becoming a almost a liability. People <laughs> don't want the car because mm. you know where do I pay? Where do I park? And mm. and if it's on the street, I got to move it all the time because of clearways. And if I've got a spot, it comes with a tariff that I got to pay each year or extra expenses. So so it's actually seen a little bit as a downside. I know some developers a few years ago they were telling me that. For every new development, they had to have a certain number of car space, minimum car space numbers per per apartment. Now there are ceilings uh, to the the car space. You have to have fewer than this many car spaces per unit uh, mm-hmm. because they're, they're trying to reduce the number of, of spaces and cars in the city. So that's a, a city change that's come about because we've got better infrastructure and because people are in an Uber era. They don't want the hassle of a car They've got everything, you know, by foot or, mm. or easy um, commute, and that gives them the lifestyle they're looking for. And I think it's um, interesting because a lot of the new developments I've been watching, um, you know, they're making partnerships with GoGet. And mm. so they're not just, you know, the boring little Yaris or the, mm. two, you know, they're actually, you know, SUVs and things yes. that suit families, mm. you know, and baby seats and things like that. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's great. You don't need a car till you have a child. But then, well, actually, no, now there's cars in these buildings that have, got ready to have, you know, with a baby seat ready yeah, to go. Clever. So, mm. um, you know, and they're electric and they're already charged and the car parks and you've already always got to park because. Yeah, um, you don't uh, need one. It's no, just that's right. Get parked, and, yeah. um, you know, you can book it on an app. And what they're also doing is it's quite smart is they're partnering with other developments in the area and saying, well, we'll, we'll give you 20 passes to our car parker go get because, you know, and then there's this kind of cross sharing of cars mm. in and so I think, you know, it's very interesting that people say, oh, you must have car parking. Uh, I think it's very important if you want to hit that family market, mm-hmm. but a lot of other apartments, maybe not. So it's it's, it's always interesting studying these trends. Yeah. And back, and back in episode 70, we uh, interviewed Sarah Wilkinson, a mm. professor of property yes. from UTS, and she was talking about the future. We could be seeing farms in the car parks. Mm. That's right. Because yeah. if the, all the farms on the outside yes. of the suburbs have been mowed down to build new house and land packages, then we're going to have to grow our food somewhere. So. Yes, that's right. Amazing. <laughs> what do you think this means for the current developments? You know, you mentioned about stock we've built hasn't been great for what uh, changing demographics. What do we do with all the other properties that we've bought that maybe that's not what the next generation want? Well, this was thought of you about those McMansions in the suburb, what's going to become of them? You know, we've got fewer children per household, which has been a trend for some time. Who needs five-bedroom homes, six-bedroom homes, you know, these big uh, McMansions? But they are being well used now with the multi-generational household. You've got a lot of parents and their kids still at home, and now they're having their own children. You've got two or three generations under the one roof. You've got the, the working from home set up or the home office or uh, some people now running businesses from their homes. And so... We have an ability as humans to adapt. The, the, uh, a large city has enough diversity in terms of 
the the attitudes, the household sizes and structures to soak up uh, this sort of demand. So mm. I think the key for developments, it's hard for anyone to predict the future, but if we can build flexibility into the design, mm. some modular idea where it can then be suited for, you know, singles or young couples, those that are raising kids, older kids as well, and it can accommodate an aging population. So we've got wider doors or it can be retrofitted for, for the needs of older Australians. That's the sort of flexible thinking we need into the yeah. future so that our, our homes are future-proofed. It's interesting you say that because IKEA is doing, um, you know, uh, basically robots, sort of electric furniture. So, you know, it's you know it's going to basically be on offered soon where they can basically go in and you press a button and your bed goes down and then you, it goes back up. And it's, yeah. it's well, because, it builds itself. Well, basically within your apartment you can press, yes. you know, buttons and you open up living spaces. So the room changes from being a bedroom to a living room to a, yeah. But yeah, you don't have amazing. to, you know, manually yeah. do it. Mm. You just that's press right. a button or you clap and... Yeah. You know, these things will happen, and that's yeah. another it's a transformer. So, yeah, basically, your right. apartment is a transformer, <laughs> yeah. Cool. And it's, um, and it, you know, and if one of the biggest names in the world of furniture is, you know, basically going to take that's one of their next big key directions, yes. you can very much see this, and apartments, um, will basically move around as you're in it to create new spaces. So, it's uh, it's interesting to watch, watch this space, dare mm. we say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. That's been a really informative chat. And like usual, we get into these conversations and I think we could actually have an entire series <laughs> on what is in your brain and what you're prepared to share with us. So thank you for very generously sharing your time and knowledge. Very and uh, I'm looking forward to getting this out there for everyone to hear. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank Great you. to be with you. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Let's have a quick chat about the bank of mum and dad. Now, we've talked a lot about Gen Y, Gen Z and Gen Alpha now and how they're going to get into the property market and certainly the impetus and the encouragement that comes from parents, which is all good and often very well meant. The thing is, though, certainly in the boom, as, as Chris spoke about earlier, that quite often it was the parents' FOMO, that, you know, on behalf of their kids, that was pushing them to push their kids into the property market and I have to say, I saw this many, many times at auction. I saw it where mum and dad are there um, bidding on behalf of, you know, little Johnny or little Susie. And little Johnny or little Susie's actually turned to mum and dad in the middle of the auction and said, no, that's enough. I don't want to bid any higher. But dad, usually, I haven't seen mum do it much, but mostly dad, has sort of said, no, son, no, son, no, daughter, you know, we can do this. I can help you. And many, many times on the back of this, we've seen young people overpay for property under the pressure of an auction because they've had the, in inverted commas, support of the parents. Now, maybe the parents did cough up that extra 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 for the property. But the thing is that they were letting their elephant drive their bidding, not actually thinking about, well, what is the property worth? So FOMO is a terrible reason to buy anything. It's certainly an even worse reason to continue bidding when the price has gone beyond value. So in terms of Elephant Rider Bootcamp, you know, it's great to get support from your parents, but generally speaking, they are not property experts. So that's the first thing I'd say. Just be very aware of that. They may have bought one or two properties in their lives. They may think they've done really well in property and they may well have. Is that been luck? Has it been good circumstance or has it actually been through design? Generally speaking, it has not been through design. The next thing I would say is that, so, you know, be careful turning to them for advice and it's great for them to give you support, but don't let that determine what you buy. You know, I know some parents will say, well, I'll support you, but you have to buy this there or, you know, can't buy that type of property because I don't, you know, you're too far from me or, or I don't believe that's a good property or whatever. It, you know, that's risky. When money is given with strings attached, right, you've got to be careful because at the end of the day, you are going to be the one that is left with that property and left with the responsibility of that property. And property carries a lot of risk and a lot of responsibility. So Bank of Mum and Dad is great. It's wonderful to have generous parents who really want to help their kids just make sure no strings attached and don't let them bid for you. Please join us for our next episode. We're back on the data trail. We're interviewing Cameron Kusha, who is the head of Australian research for CoreLogic. You know, we tried to trap 
Cameron into giving us some real inside intel and some cases we're a little bit lucky. So listen on because what we are going to find out is what is the most misleading data that is out there? What is the most important thing to do with data? And we do talk about my favourite report, which is the pain and gain report. We're going to talk about the impact that the property market slowdown has had on uh, properties selling at a loss in Australia. What are some of the weaknesses in Australian property data, but also what is the most data to take notice of in isolation? Please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.